Our scripture today is from the second chapter of Mark, verses 3 through 12. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. My name is Rob Lau. I'm one of the pastors here at Ebenezer. And, you know, Memorial Day weekend is always an interesting weekend for the church. We often have a lower worship attendance, though this service looks great. And so, you know, there's a part of you that always gets yourself psyched up for recognizing that there, people are going to be gone. And, and so I want to say thank you for being here on this holiday weekend. And then there's another part of me that wants to say, I'm kind of sorry you didn't have anywhere else to go. You know, there's that part of me too. Uh, but we're glad you're here. So thank you for, thank you for being here. Uh, so when President Jimmy Carter was in office, his daughter Amy lived with them. Uh, there in the White House. And one day she came home on a Friday afternoon with a school project, an essay that needed to be, uh, complete the following week. Uh, but she, she couldn't, she couldn't figure up one part of it out. And so she called her mom, Rosalind Carter, in, and she didn't know the answer either. And so Rosalind asked an aide to call somebody at the Department of Labor to try and help figure out the answer to the question. So the Department of Labor on a Friday afternoon gets a request from the White House, spends all weekend with the entire department, ran up a bill of over $200,000 in extra labor to try and answer the question. Here's the funniest part of it. She turned the paper in, got it back. She made a C on the paper. (laughs) Here's my question to you. Have you ever used your power in a way that had unintended consequences? All of us have power and influence. All of us have power and influence. Whether it's at work or in our families or in mentoring relationship or with friends, we all have some degree of power. And one of the questions that we're going to wrestle with throughout the course of this morning is, how do we use the power that God has entrusted to us. So I want to invite you to keep that in the back of your mind and your soul for just a moment as I introduce our new sermon series. Today we're launching a new sermon series. It's called The First 
gospel. You see, the gospel of Mark almost certainly was the first gospel ever written, and therefore it was closest to the actual life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in time. Mark is a, a fascinating text. We're going to explore it for the next three weeks, but uh, as, as we do... One of the things that I, I hope we will keep in mind is that we're going to do things a little bit differently over the course of these next three weeks. See, normally what we do is we look at one passage of Scripture, we try to understand that passage of Scripture and figure out how it applies to our lives so we can go out and be better disciples. But what I want us to do over the course of the next few weeks is instead look at the Gospel of Mark as an entire unit and try to understand the major movements and themes throughout the Gospel of Mark. Because if we do that, here's what's going to happen. Not only are we going to learn more about God and and learn how to be better disciples, but when we understand the Gospel of Mark as it was intended to be understood in its fullness, the Gospel of Mark makes a compelling case within us to go forth and share the Gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of this world. So as we launch into this series, I want to give you a little bit of background uh, information, some context for uh, the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark was written about uh, 70 A.D. Uh, its authorship is unknown. We don't know exactly who wrote the Gospel of Mark, though throughout Christian history it's been attributed to a disciple of Peter by the name of John Mark, which is why it has the name uh, Mark. The third thing is that Mark is really uh, can be understood in three parts, the Gospel as a whole. There are 16 chapters, chapters 1 through 8, act as one unit, and they have kind of a sub-theme. Chapters 9 through 15 act as the second part, and they have another theme. And then chapter 16 ties everything together in in the third part. So over the course of the next three weeks, we're going to take this section by section. Today, we are going to look at excerpts from the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark. And here is the question that's going to drive our conversation. Okay, What does this passage found in the first eight chapters of Mark. What does it teach us about Jesus Christ? What do we learn about Jesus in the things that we are reading? So as we launch into the first gospel, the question, what are we learning about Jesus Christ in the first eight chapters of the gospel of Mark? So let's get started by looking at an excerpt from uh, Mark chapter 2. We just heard part of this read. Uh, Some people came uh, bringing a paralyzed man carried by four of his friends, and when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him and after having dug through it they let him down on a mat and when jesus saw their faith jesus said to the paralyzed man son your sins are forgiven just something i want you to know before we go any further what was the impetus what was the cause that inspired jesus to heal this man was it the faith of the man himself no whose faith inspired Jesus to heal this guy. The faith of his his friends, his stretcher bearers. Uh, One of the most important things that I've done in my discipleship life is uh, I went on a pilgrimage to Israel. And uh, this story takes place in Capernaum at the home of Peter. And if you go to Capernaum today, they build a church over top of the ruins of Peter's house. And if you walk up onto the chancel area of that church, the chancel is glass. And you can look down through the chancel into the ruins of what was Peter's home back in the first century in Judea. Said differently, you have the same perspective as the paralyzed man had when he was being lowered into Peter's home. It was a powerful moment. One of the things I love about this passage is that the reason this man experienced healing wasn't because of his own faith. It was because of the faith of his friends. And so it begs this question. 
Who are your stretcher bearers? Who are the people that you know in your life, when times get tough, they're going to make certain to carry you into the presence of Jesus Christ? Who are those people in your life? Maybe you are sitting right next to one of those people today. Maybe there is someone right next to you that you know when times get tough, those people are going to bring you into the throne room of Jesus Christ. If you're sitting next to one of those people, one of your stretcher bearers, just turn around and give them a fist bump real quick for me, would you? God bless you for being stretcher bearers. We can't overstate how important this is. The man wasn't healed because of his own faith. The man was healed because of the faith of his friends. What does that tell us? It tells us when the people around us will covenant to take us into the throne room of Jesus Christ, that he'll be inspired to to give forgiveness and and healing to us. So who are your stretcher bearers? And of course there's a follow-on question, right? For whom are you a stretcher bearer? Who is the person, who are the people that you will carry into the presence of Jesus Christ in the midst of their difficult moments? Uh, I love that. That's not where the story ends, of course. Jesus says to the man, take heart, your sins are forgiven. And then Jesus perceives that there's some, some gossip taking place in the rest of the home. There are some scribes there and they're saying, who is this guy think he is? He think he's God? Well, actually, yes, he does. Uh, but only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus looks at him and he says, why, why are you asking that kind of question? Which is harder? Is it harder to say your sins are forgiven or to say you, you are healed, take up your mat and go home? And Jesus said, so, so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say, take up your mat and go home. And the man immediately took up his mat and went home. So here's the question. What do we learn about Jesus in Mark chapter 2? We learn that Jesus has power. Not simply over the physical realm, but over the spiritual realm as well. Jesus has power over the physical realm and the spiritual realm as well. Let's take a look at another passage from Mark chapter 4. A great windstorm arose. The waves beat in the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But Jesus was in the stern asleep on a cushion. They woke him up and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing He woke up and rebuked the wind. He said to the sea, peace, be still. Then the wind ceased and there was a dead calm. He said to them, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? I love this passage for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons I love this passage is because throughout the Gospel of Mark, the the disciples are painted as those who have an inadequate faith. Uh, Throughout the entirety of the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are, are, are considered quite faithless. They really struggle to believe. And so they, they run up to Jesus and they, they wake him up. He's asleep in the middle of the storm. I, I love that image. Jesus isn't worried, right? He's asleep. And they run up and they, they wake him up and they say, Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care? The reason I think that's so interesting is because it's one of the questions that I ask Jesus sometimes. When the winds start blowing in my life and when my boat starts taking on water, I have a tendency to lift my fist to heaven and say, don't you care? And here's what I love about that. Of course Jesus cares. Of course Jesus cared when the disciples felt like the boat was going under. Of course Jesus cared. You know how we know that? Because he was in the boat with them. And here's the, one of the teachings I think we take from this. Jesus, 
when we lift our fists to heaven and we say, where have you been, O God? Don't you care that the winds are screaming and the waves are falling in my boat? Don't you care? Jesus says to us still today, of course I care. I'm in the boat with you. For Christ is called Emmanuel, the God who walks with us. And so we could ask the question of this passage, what does this passage teach us? And one of the things it teaches us, of course, Jesus has power over over the, the world, over the cosmos, right? Jesus has power over nature, but that's not all. We also learn in this passage that amazingly, Jesus Christ had the power to build a revolution even out of people who didn't have perfect faith. Jesus had the power to build a revolution out of folks who didn't have perfect faith. The disciples didn't have perfect faith. And guess what? Neither do I. And I'm guessing neither do you. But Jesus has the power to build revolution out of people without perfect faith. That's people just like you and me. Let's look at one more example from the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 6, we read these words. As Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion for, for them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place and the hour is now very late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. But Jesus answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said, Are we to go and buy 200 denarii? A denarii was the average day's wage. Are we to go and spend over six months' wages to buy bread for all these people? Jesus said to them, How many loaves have you? And go and see. And when they had found out, they came back and they said, We have five loaves and two fish. And Jesus ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves, he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He divided the two fish among them all, and all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of fish. The next line in the Bible tells us, there were five thousand men at that feast that day. Didn't count the women and the children who were also there. Historically, there have been two ways to interpret this passage. The first way that people interpret this passage is to say that Jesus was really powerful. Of course Jesus is really powerful. John chapter 1 says everything that was made was made through him. Without him nothing was made. The first interpretation of this passage, the most common, is to say that Jesus had the power to take a little bit of bread and turn it into a lot of bread. Okay. I believe that Jesus can do that. Do you believe Jesus could do that? Sure. Of course, Jesus could take a little bit of bread and turn it into a lot of bread. I have a different skill set. I could take a lot of bread and turn it into a little bread. <laughs> but Jesus could take a little bit of bread and turn it into a lot of bread. But here's the second possible interpretation, okay? Mark does not tell us, but Matthew, when recounting this same story, does tell us, where did the five loaves and two fish come from? Anybody remember? A little boy. It was a child's lunch. A child who had a kind enough mama to say, if you're going to go follow that long-winded preacher, you need to take some lunch with you. And so she packed him a lunch, five little loaves, two fish. And the Bible says this boy, moved by the compassionate teaching of Jesus Christ, this boy took his lunch and he gave it for the good of the community. The second interpretation of the story says that when people saw this boy, inspired by the teaching of Christ, give sacrificially, that the people around Jesus started to take out the food that they brought with them too. And they started to share it. 
And they discovered in the midst of their sharing that when they were willing to share the things they had, they actually had more than enough for everybody. So I ask you this question. What is the greater miracle? That the God who forms the mountains and creates the wind, who turns dawn into darkness every single day, can take a little bit of bread and turn it into a lot of bread? Or that that same God can inspire people who live on the edge of poverty to give what little they have in order to sustain the community around them. Which is the greater miracle? I don't know. I want both of them to be true, truthfully. So what do we, what do we learn? What does Jesus teach us? What do we learn from Jesus in this passage? I would say that we learn that Jesus has the power to create. But it's not just that he has the power to create bread, food. Jesus has the power to create community, real community. Do you see a theme emerging in these first eight chapters? Let me, let me break it down a little bit further for us. In Mark chapter 1, we see that Jesus has power over unclean spirits. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus has power over the physical and the spiritual realm. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus has power over sickness as he heals a man with a withered hand. In Mark chapter 4, we saw that Jesus has power over creation as he calms the storm. Power to build a revolution out of those who struggle with faith. In chapter 5, we see that Jesus has power over life and death as he resurrects the daughter of a man named Jairus. In chapter 6, we see Jesus has power to feed 5,000 people and build a community. In chapter 7, we find that Jesus has power over deafness. In chapter 8, Jesus has power over blindness. Do you see the common theme? In the first eight chapters of Mark, we see a Jesus who is a powerful prophet. He has power over everything. Absolutely everything. This is the theme of the first eight chapters of Mark, but it's not simply that Jesus has power. It's the way Jesus uses his power. Jesus uses his power time and time again to make a difference in the lives of those who otherwise had no hope. We began our conversation today by talking about the power we have in our lives. What we learn is how Jesus used his agency and power. I want to suggest that we could find three key takeaways from the first eight chapters of Mark. And the first takeaway, the first point of application for us is that the one who possessed power over sin, sickness, and storms so long ago possesses that same power today. The one who possessed power over sin, sickness, and storms so long ago possesses that same power still today. This is, this is about trusting in the, the great full power of our God. When I, when I started out as a pastor, um, I had this profound sense of my own inadequacy to do this work. I vividly remember asking myself questions. God, how am I supposed to stand up every week and say something that first anybody would want to listen to and secondly, to say something that would actually nurture your people in the faith? And that's not the biggest one though. The, the, the bigger one that I had was, God, how do you expect me to stand with integrity at the bedside of, of someone who's dying as, as children are saying goodbye to their parents and God forbid the few times I've had to stand next to bedsides as parents had to say goodbye to their child. I struggled 
with my own inadequacy of counseling people in such a way that moved them towards more faithful and fruitful lives, then I'm not alone in this feeling of inadequacy. It's the same feeling that most of us have the minute we find out we're going to have a baby. Not me, Lord. I'm going to screw this kid up. Honestly, how many of you have had that opinion, right? God, help me and help this child. It's the feeling we get any time that something is, is big and important and it gets dropped into our lives and we find out that we are the ones who have authority over that thing. Irony of recognizing God's power is that it causes us to acknowledge the limitation of our own power. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it. Paul was... I would say the most important of the apostles, the most important man of God since Jesus Christ. And he had an inadequacy in his life. He was suffering with something. And the Bible says that he, he prayed for God to take that away. You remember what God said to him? Nope. What God said back to Paul is, I'm not going to take this away from you. My grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. To trust in the power of God necessarily means that we must rely on God to accomplish the God-sized thing that God has called us to do. So the first takeaway this morning is the recognition that if we're going to do great things together, we have to trust in the power of God. A second takeaway. It is true that God's power is much greater than ours, but God has elected to share power with us. We all have some power and agency in this world. And so the second takeaway is that Jesus teaches us how to use the power we have and how to do so well. Jesus served everybody, but especially Jesus spent time serving the least, the last, and the lost. Jesus specialized in serving the disenfranchised. If Jesus teaches us one thing about power, the King of Kings teaches us to use our power to serve. If you're going to take one thing away from our time together, I pray that this is the one question that will burn in all of our souls as we walk out of this place today. How am I using the power entrusted to me by God? How am I using the power entrusted to me by God to serve the disenfranchised? Some of us may have really great answers to that question in our lives. Some of us may have some work to do. Jesus Christ taught us how to use power. We use it not to serve ourselves. Not to elevate ourselves or make ourselves more comfortable. Jesus walked away from comfort and riches and glory in order to come and serve us. And he teaches us to do the same. One final takeaway this morning. In chapters 1 through 8, Jesus consistently chooses love over protocol. What does that mean? Well... We have certain protocols or traditions in our lives, and there's nothing wrong with our traditions and our protocol, provided that they they don't keep us from sharing God's love. In Mark chapter 2, we saw this. This is the historic way that sins were atoned for in in the ancient Near East, amongst the Jewish people. 
is on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. There was a sacrifice. That was the tradition. That was the protocol. But when the man was lowered down from the ceiling in front of Jesus, Jesus said, forget the protocol. I'm going to choose love. Son, your sins are forgiven. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus heals the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman. What does that mean? It simply means that she wasn't Jewish. She was unclean. Protocol dictated that Jesus wasn't supposed to have anything to do with her. But love trumped protocol. We see it over and over again. The love of Christ trumped the protocol. It's part of what got him killed. We, we all have experienced this before. Many of you walk, work in Washington, D.C. And you walk by people often who are asking for handouts. Yes? Do you ever have an internal debate as a Christian about what you're supposed to do in that moment? Anybody? I'm not alone, right? And here's the thing that goes through my head. Here's the protocol. If I give this person 10 bucks, what are they going to spend that money on? You've had that question run through your minds, yes? What does it look like for love to trump protocol? I'm not suggesting that you hand a 20 to the next person you see who's asking for money. But I do think there's a question that is present in our lives when we encounter people who are clearly in a position of need. And in that moment, if I encounter someone who is hungry, I probably shouldn't give them money, but... Maybe God is calling me to give them some food. How will you allow love to triumph over protocol in your life? How do you use power? All of us have been given power. It's not perfect power. Only God has that. But God has entrusted us with some power. And the power that God has given us, God teaches us how to use. God says we must use it to care for the disenfranchised, which often means that our love must break protocol. Just one final thought. Of all the wonderful gifts that my family and I have received in the course of this last year, one of the greatest gifts is the gift of our small group I actually had lunch with Mark Miller yesterday, my friend Mark Miller, who had been the pastor here for 22 years uh, before you drew the short straw and got me. And uh, he said, can you believe it's been a year? And I said, no. And he asked, you know, are you guys adjusting well? And I said, yeah, we've really loved, loved all the people there and are growing in our relationships there. But our small group in particular, they've been like family to us because we don't have any family in this area. And so our small group has, has been family. And, and you, know, you know who above and beyond anybody else I need to thank? For the gift of my small group. It's a woman by the name of Virginia Richardson. Virginia Richardson is about four feet, two inches tall, weighs 19 pounds, right? But this woman used her power. She used her power to build our network of small groups so that people had a home, so that we had a family together in Christ. This past Tuesday, our longtime member of our staff and our friend Virginia Richardson went home to be with Jesus. And I know a lot of hearts are breaking in Ebenezer Church. I want to let you know that this coming Friday at 5 o'clock, we're going to have a party. It's going to start in this room at 5 o'clock on Friday. We're going to celebrate her life. 
And that party will spill over into the gym as we feast afterwards. She was a tiny little woman. But she used her power to change this community and therefore this world. How will you use your power? Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the life of our friend Virginia Richardson. I thank you for the wonderful ministry that she carried out here at Ebenezer Church. We we pray your blessing over her as you receive her into glory, that you might transform our vision from someone who was struggling and sick, wrestling to catch her next breath, now transformed into what you've always dreamed she could be, a saint who dances before your throne. We pray for Keith and Wesley and Matthew. We pray for us. We give you thanks for the the way that you have entrusted us as you share your power with us. And for the way you've taught us how to share that power with those around us. How to use that power in a faithful way. How to serve. And, And in serving, build community and transform the world. Thank you for trusting us. Help us to live lives that are worthy of that trust, we pray. We ask these things in the name and to the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all of God's people said, Amen.